Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Praise the Lord. Glory be to God. How was your week? Oh, it was a great week, you know. Messy. If I don't talk about it, will you not be surprised? Messi made his debut in his new club, you know. And you know, I, I, I can preach about that because at the end of the service, in the nick of time, in the 11th hour, it's called a free kick. You know, that just tells us about the mercy of God. When, when it looks like there is no hope. Oh my God. Hallelujah. That's the only goats that we make heaven because it will separate the sheep from the goats. I understand. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. this month been for you? Have you learned anything? I hope you have. You see, the teaching of this month is a matter of emergency. What did I call it? You see, many atheists that you know are atheists because they had questions that were left unanswered for a long time. Because unfortunately, you can go to church for donkey years and questions are left unanswered. In fact, many people do not know church to be the place where questions are answered. Church in Africa is more akin to a hospital. You come with your problems, God intervenes, then you go home. And that's what it is. And so some people, when they have questions, maybe even from a young age, there's no one to answer them. In fact, they might be castigated just for asking. And then their heart grows more hardened. You know, let me tell you how I stumbled into what you would call apologetics. Apologetics is a science of, you know, or just defense. Apologia, as the name implies, to give a defense. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give a defense, an answer to those who ask for the reason of the hope that is in you. So when someone says, why do you believe what you believe? You should have a defense. Come on, are you with me? And this is how it all started. In the university, someone accosted me somewhere in a semi-private public place. And he said, well, why should I believe the Bible? seeing that it was written by men like me. Now, I knew without any air of doubt that the Bible was the word of, word of God. It could be trusted. God could be trusted. You know, I knew what he was saying was wrong. But I didn't have the answer at the time. And then I wondered, how come I've been in church all my life? Nobody thought to explain this to me. How come? And that's when it dawned on me, you, you can be in church for donkey years and very key questions are not answered. 
And let me tell you what hurt me that day. I could tell from his demeanor that because I couldn't answer that question, his heart grew more callous. Some of you know what I'm saying. Like, it, it feels like a new layer of unbelief was unlocked. And I went back determined. I, I want to be able to answer questions. Praise the Lord. And you will save many people just by answering questions. And that's, so as we continue our series on Bible interpretation, I want you to see it as something very important. It is important. And one of the most radical things I ever heard a man of God say at the early stages of my work with God was this. He said, the Bible is not the word of God. And he stopped there on purpose. Because he knew that people were going to react to that. And he was right. In fact, I reacted. I was like, hmm. The Bible says that in the last days, there will be false teachers. I think I just found one of them. And then he continued. Rather, the Bible contains the word of God. And when you think about it objectively and deeply, that's true. I mean, think about it. Have you heard this statement before? If you are the son of God, turn stone to bread. Have you heard that statement before? Who made that statement? Where? In the Bible. So that's the word of the devil in the Bible. And so the Bible contains the words, some words of the devil as well, contains some words of people who were enemies of God, enemies of the church, you know, and people who were acting in their carnality. For instance, Job's wife saying, curse God and die. It's in the Bible too. And so just the, just the fact that you read from the Bible does not mean that what you read or heard was the word of God. The Bible is not what you read. The word of God is not what you read. It is what was explained. The word of God is the Bible properly exegeted, properly explained. That's the difference. That's the difference. And that's why interpretation is important. Otherwise, it will suffice just by the devil saying, I mean, jump from the pinnacle of the temple for it is written. He shall give his angels charge over you. It was written. He was correct. He quoted it right. But what he said was not the word of God. Because you see, the word of God must be the interpreted will of God based on the consistency of what is written. So Jesus replied, though it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. It is also written. Now, that's interpretation. Come on, I get what I'm saying. That's interpretation. That's interpretation. And like I said last week and the week before, if you don't interpret the Bible, the devil will do it for you. And he will come and say, did God say? He will come to Eve and say, did God say? That's interpretation. He's trying to cast a different understanding on what God said. This is why interpretation is important. And like I'm telling you, it will many times be the difference between if someone will be saved or not. And so here is what I'm going to do for the benefit of those who just joined this teaching series halfway through. I want to try to do a brief recap in a way that will give you a soft landing to be able to get on this journey with us and then we move to the point of today. 
So when we talk about interpretation, I want to give you four C's. I made it that way just so that you can, you can remember. Four C's of Bible interpretation. Number one is contexts. What did I call it? Context. I have a lot to say about this, but I've said a lot in previous sermons. You should probably listen to it. There's a popular hermeneutic joke, you know, which, by the way, reflects what many of us used to do when we were young in Christ. Where we just stretch out our Bible and say, Lord, as I open this Bible now, wherever I open, it will be you speaking to me. And I said, what you used to do when you were young, because I hope you have outgrown that foolishness. <laughs> and a man opened and saw, and Judas went and hung himself. He closed it and said, no, Lord, no, you can't. No, that cannot be my Rema word. I'm going to open again, and you'll be speaking to me. And he opened it, and so go and do likewise. He closed it, Lord, no, what's going on? Am I in the spirit today? I'm going to do it one more time. And he opened the third time, and what he saw was, what you do, do quickly. And then he closed it. And so what finally dawned on that young man is that, Everything written in the Bible has a context. And so you don't just open it and handpick and say you heard from God. Listen, make no mistake. The days of ignorance God winked at. There are some people who will have maybe powerful prophetic encounters from that. It doesn't make it right. Come on, are you with me? And you see, many people, what they call Rema is their religious excuse for reading the Bible out of context. That's what they call Rema. Think about it. What many people describe as Rema is a religious excuse for reading the Bible out of context. Just open anywhere. Make no mistake. The word of God is prophetic in nature. And, and so something that you have been reading all your life, you can have an experience where you read it in a particular season and it is like fire shot in your bones. It, it, it's like you've, you, you're hearing it for the first time. Come on, are you with me? I mean, uh, that's how come you can be a Christian for donkey years and every time you're reading the Bible, it's new. The Bible is prophetic in nature. It, it looks like you are reading a living book. But let me tell you the balance. If you ever read anything out of context, that's not a Rema word. A Rema word will still be in its context applicable in your situation even if it wasn't written to you it was written for you do you understand the difference so for instance i was sitting in the front in a service, in a service we, had we had many many years ago in school and just like someone was standing in front of me must have been an angel re reciting the word of god thou O lord are a shield for me my glory and the lifter up of my head it it I wasn't reading my Bible. The person talking was not quoting from that text, but I heard it. And my, my heart caught fire. Oh my God. And I knew what God was telling me, especially in the context, though it applied to David, it was applicable for me. Because David said, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many are they be that say of my soul, 
there is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me. So the Lord was telling me that in ministry, there will be many confrontations and people who will stand against me, but he will be the lifter up of my head. He told me that years ago. And it was powerful. It set me ablaze. Do you understand what I'm saying? But it's a totally different thing when you begin to try to make the scripture say what it never said. And so when the Bible says that Paul went up by revelation, when he heard, when he got this new information, he went up and the place that is being described is a high plane geographically. Hence, the Bible saying he went up. Don't now start saying uh, when you get revelation, you go up. That's not what it means. Don't make the whole Bible allegorical. What is Rema to begin with? Someone says Rema is revelation. No, it's not. That's not even the Greek word for revelation. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypse. So what then is Rema? And why try to make a distinction, Rema word? That's tautological because Rema means word. So Rema word is word word, which makes no sense. It's tautological. Ain't no such thing as Rema word. You will never see such presentation in the word of God because there's no such thing. It is either word or it's not word. So what is the difference between Rema and Logos? Guess what? Nothing. It's just the same way a word, um, two words can have the same meaning. They're synonyms, literally synonyms. And so even in some references, they were used interchangeably. So Peter is speaking in Cornelius' house, and the Bible says, while Peter yet spake this Rema, they... Um, the Spirit of God fell on all them that heard the logos. They were used interchangeably. Peter was not saying two different things. But they were just used interchangeably. Rema and logos, they mean the same thing. Come on, are you listening to me? And so, and then someone says, oh, logos is the written word. Rema is the spoken word. Guess what? What was written was first spoken. He no difference. Ain't no difference. The reason it's important is because when you find yourself in that slippery slope where you can take things out of context, you are in an arena of deception and the devil can get you there. Please, are you listening to me? You're, you are in an arena of deception and the devil can then get you. So, how do I... Learn to study the word in context. We all know it. We just know it selectively. For instance, you do it when you read something in the Bible that is negative. Anytime you read something in the Bible that is negative, that's when you remember he's not talking to me. He's, not, he's, not, he's talking to them. That's reading in context. Now, learn to do it for the good stuff. Learn that the Bible, though written for you, is not written to you. And so, remember what we talked about last week. You must learn to take the word of God across that generational bridge and learn how it is applicable in your context and in Christ. 
when you read the same text says, I have said you are gods. You say, ah, yes, we are gods. But he now said you shall die like men. No, no, he was talking to them. Why is the first part talking to you? The second part of the same verse is not talking to you. Why? Don't be selective. So now, you look at the context. You know, I like this hermeneutical exp expression. When you take the text from context, the way it is spelled, when you take text out of context, what you, you are left with is con, deception, right? Come on, are you here? Yes, or the rain has entered your soul. <laughs> we reign with Christ, amen? Yeah, just to cheer you up. Even some of you, you're easy. <laughs> Hallelujah! So the first is context. And I want to tell you this. This is one of the most important rules in interpretation. In fact, the meaning of a word is to be understood in context. A word can have a different meaning in context. So you look at the context to understand what particular nuance the word is supposed to take. I wish I could give you examples, but I don't want to stretch this. This is still an introduction. So what is number one? And number two, the number two C is culture. We talked about that last week, you know, giving the example of holy kiss. And some of you, you were quiet throughout the sermon until you had kiss. Just an observation. You know, but I, I think it's a very powerful example. So when you read Holy Keys, you don't apply that. What you apply is the doctrine behind it, which is the doctrine of cordial relations with people in Christ. So the way they showed cordiality in that time was by pecking. There are still some cultures that do that. We don't do that. Amen? amen? Say amen loud before I suspect you. <laughs> Don't go kiss personal. <laughs> Hallelujah. So number one is context. Number two is culture. Number three is communication. Or language. Are you aware that language evolves? And so there are some things that meant something in a generation and means something else in a particular generation because language evolves. Words evolve. For instance, when you see cross in your Bible, C-R-O-S-S, you think of an actual cross. But most, more often than not, in Bible history, cross was letter T. And so, whether you like it or not, when you're reading, subconsciously, you are interpreting through the lens of your current context. And a good Bible student has to journey into that time so that he can use the same lens that the people in that time used to have the same interpretation as they did. Let me give you an example, and you will, this, this will help you understand why this, as simple as it is, is very important. I've been watching some debates, you know, for years. Atheist versus Christian. You know, the case for God. 
How do you know that the Bible is the word of God? How do you know that God exists? And you see, one thing that atheists like to pick up as a proof that the Bible is a fictional book is that the Bible uses, talks about unicorns at least eight times in the Bible, unicorn. And so their logic is this. Obviously, unicorns never existed. They don't exist. But the Bible talks about them repeatedly. A fictional character is talked about in the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is fictional. You see that? And as simple as that is, it's a big issue for many of them. You have to understand, when you're already entertaining doubts, anyone that has anything that seems to, you know, further that doubt, you, you just take it up. And because you grew up in church, it doesn't stand out to you, but it's right there. My head, my horn shall thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. You have read it time and again, and you never stop to say, Unicorn? What's going on? At least eight times in the Bible. And you see, when you study, you just see immediately what he's talking about. Because the first mistake you make is you just go to the dictionary relevant to your time and culture. Webster's Dictionary. And you see unicorn. Oh, it's a mythical animal, a horse that has a, a, a horn proceeding from its nose area. But when you see the Noah's Webster's Dictionary, which is about 200 years, years old, at the time that that translation, the KJV, was done in that same area, era, when you check the definition of unicorn, you now see that it was mostly used to describe rhinoceros. Think about how rhinoceroses look. They are not horses, but they are an animal, and then they have a horn. So that was what they were called at that time. And then when you look at the word rhinoceros in the same dictionary, it now tells you that there were two species in that time, the unicorn and the bi biconi. So uni for one horn, I think, and bi for two. So the, 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 the rhinoceros that we have today, that still exists today, has two horns. Guess what? Even the scientific name for unicorns still dates. For, for rhinoceros, I beg your pardon, till date, rhinoceros unicorn, rhinoceros unicornis or something like that, and rhinoceros binoconis. So you still have unicorns there, binocorn there. And it just tells you that that, was, that used to be their name. In the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of those texts, Text like Job chapter 39 verse 9 that talks about unicorn also, it was actually rhinoceros. So that's what they were called at the time. I don't know if you understand what I just said. So the fact that now when you see the word, something else comes to mind doesn't mean, oh, the Bible therefore is a fictional character. They actually meant rhinoceros. You may need to listen to this again to, to, to get what I just said. But if you hear, say, I hear. I hear. And so that's just a simple example of language and how it can make a world of difference. So to be sure you're following, what is number one? What is number two? What is number three? And number four is Christ. And that might seem surprising to you, but I want you to understand this, that Christ 
is not just the person by whom you are saved. Christ is a methodology in interpretation. I will explain. So the Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was the God, the word was God. And the word, translated word is logos. The Greek word logos. And that is the word from which we have the modern day word logic. Check the etymology of that word. I need to lead you to logos. And it means that Christ, when we say Christ is the logos of God, we mean he's the logic of God. Meaning if you want to understand how God behaves, what God is like, how he thinks, how he does what he does, look at Christ. In fact, that's what it, it, it was meant when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. He's not just talking about salvific access. He's talking about the revelation of God that the way to know God is in his Christ. And so Paul put it this way. He says the Godhead is revealed in Jesus bodily. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. And so this is the methodology of interpretation. One of the most important things that you can learn in Bible interpretation is that just because someone did something in the Bible doesn't make it right. Everything that any prophet did in the Bible must be passed through the test of consistency in Christ to know if it is the will of God. Do you understand what I just said? And so when Jesus came on the scene, some historians say he was 28, some say he was 30, makes no difference to me. You know, his first ever sermon, after he had said the part of the, the sermon that you people, you, most people call the Beatitudes, he now goes to the deep stuff as far as I'm concerned. And then he said, you have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you, what audacity. So the logos of God, the logic of God has the audacity to correct some things that had been institutionalized religiously. He has the audacity to correct some things that Moses did. They come to him with a question on divorce. And they're like, oh, well, this goes without saying because Moses has given the principle of divorcement. And Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted this to be so. But from the beginning, it was not so. So just the fact that Moses established it didn't mean it was consistent with God's ultimate will. It doesn't mean that Moses was entirely wrong. It means that that was what was applicable at his time, bearing the context of the audience he was dealing with. Do you understand what I'm saying? And sometimes they were outrightly wrong. Jesus wants to go and preach somewhere in a city. And they wouldn't let him enter. And so two of his disciples say, fire to burn down the city like Elijah did it. Question, did Elijah not do stuff like that? But the Bible says Jesus rebuked them for even suggesting such. He said the son of man did not come to destroy but to save. So now that means in Christ some of the excesses of Elijah are corrected. Some of the excesses of Elisha are corrected. When a, a prophet is going and young boys begin to mock his bowed hair and he commands a beard to come out and destroy them, Elisha, just in case you've not heard it before, listen to me. Elisha was wrong. 
And this is very important, especially in a culture where we venerate men of God to an extent where everything they do is law. I want you to know that there are many great things that you can learn from prophets, both in Bible days and in our day, but they are fallible. They are not infallible. And so everything must be passed through the lens and the test of Christ for consistency. Come on, are you with me? This is very important, you see. And um, anyway, let's move on. And so when you come to Hebrews chapter 1, for instance, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he says, God who has sundry times and in diverse manners, you, you need to see that there is a comparison here, a contradistinction here. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spoke unto our fathers by the prophets, had in these last days spoken to us in his son. And then he distinguishes his son. He said his son is the brightness of his glory and the exact, exact image, express, he's not talking about Todd Mayland. The Greek word character actually means the exact image of his person. That's what Jesus meant when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. The exact image of his person. Moses was right, but he was not exact. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. So on the mountain of transfiguration, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophet appear. And oh, what an experience it must have been for the disciples or so they thought. Your childhood Bible heroes are on a mountain with you. They say, we want to trap this experience. We want to make sure that, I mean, they can spend more time with us. We have ideas. Let's make 10 so that they can stay longer. Three tents, one for you, Jesus. Just so you're not jealous. One for Elijah and one for Moses. And immediately, the voice of God from a cloud right above them interrupted that suggestion and pointed to Jesus and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And after that vision, Moses and Elijah disappear. Jesus is standing, illuminated before them. That is one of the ways God emphasized the authority of the logos above every other opinion prior. Come on, are you listening? This is so important. So you vet everything anyone had to say through the authority of the logos, the logic, and anything that is inconsistent with that you are very, you, you are well within your right to say it was wrong. And the truth is, for those of us who have been in church donkey years, there are some things that don't stand out to us. Let me say this. If you are going to be a good evangelist, you will have to step out of preconceived notion and see things that you wouldn't otherwise have seen had you not been in church all your life. So that you can be a good evangelist. Because there are some things that we just do seemingly obnoxiously. Many prophets today want to be like Elijah. Always threatening. Any small thing they want to cause. Over the, the littlest things. Let's close our eyes as we pray. Now you see some people are not closing their eyes. Now say, if you don't close your eye, you will go blind. Ah, ah. 
do you represent, God or Satan? Is your ministry for destruction or for build? Or for, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Where do you see that in Christ? And a lot of people who have not learned this simple test, you see them, Old Testament prophets in 2023. The way they dress, the way they behave, the way they act, they just... But they will, not, they will not eat locusts and honey like John. <laughs> That's the only place they beg to differ. Please, are you listening? I, I'm, I'm, I'm jokingly serious. And you just wonder, where, from whence cometh the spirits? How come you are prayerful and wicked at the same time? And both are going side by side. See through the lens of Christ. Come on, are you with me? For instance, there's something that never really occurred to us, and if I'm being honest, even to me, you know, my father-in-law, I'm trying to put him on the spot now, asked me a question last week. He said, this is a text we always use on prayer. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed that it should not rain three and a half years, and he you know, he's wondering, what kind of text is that? Considering that if there was a drought for three and a half years, even children would have died. So was he just doing that to flex? You know, some people, that's our, our definition of religious authority. That just to show you I have power, watch what will happen now. <laughs> there will be no rain. Why, sir? I'm in a bad mood. That is how we understand gifts. Sometimes you see it even in prophecy. We say, right now, you're wearing black singlet. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, you're not ready. I should leave that thing on, have you? Okay. And so? <laughs> Your socks, the under is yellow. Uh -huh. Sometimes no discretion. In the name of power, we'll call out your account number. Call out your PIN. And you see, you're saying, yes, yes. <laughs> Yahoo boy is taking notes. Are there not some things to be done? Sometimes the prophecies, respectfully, that I give generally, if you know the tremendous detail I have sometimes, if it's not needed, it's not needed. I only go deeper when maybe you are doubting. There was a service. A lady came with her dad, and I, interestingly, I wore the same suit. <laughs> and I was prophesying. I gave the first word of knowledge, no response. Gave the second one, gave it. By the fourth one, she looked at him, now nah, you know, it's you. <laughs> uh -uh. 
Es Yun. Praise the Lord. But there's need for discretion. Even in the way we prophesy. Amen, somebody. Yes. Now, to the Elijah or Elijah story. So the first thing you need to realize is that the Bible is replete with examples of the fact that God can institute a general, seemingly general verdict and still preserve innocent people. He's the God of Goshen. And so just the fact that something is happening in Egypt does not mean that innocent people are not safe. Come on, are you with me? And so here is the direct example with that time of famine. Remember the widow of Zarephath? She had just one last meal for she and her son to eat and die. And then the prophet shows up in her house that day. Remember that? That's a connection. God sent the prophet there for the preservation of the family so that she and her son will not die. And that's one story that was told in the Bible. But it just tells you the intentionality of God concerning the vulnerable. Another thing you need to notice, notice this. Even though Elijah did some things out of excess, this one was slightly different because God had a contract with the children of Israel. I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey, but in that land, don't do this, don't do that. There were rules and regulations. And one of the important rules, don't marry the pagan tribes that surround you. And he told them why. They will turn your heart from me. They will. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 11. They will turn your, your, you know, your heart away from me. Now, this time around, the king at the time, Ahab, not only, not only were his people doing it, he, he did it. He went to marry Jezebel. So there was a time the queen of Israel was a witch. And oh boy, she turned his heart away from God. You know, right? And in Deuteronomy 11, God said, if you don't do that, if you, do, if you begin to do this, this will be the consequences. So what looked like a show-off was Deuteronomy 11 prophetically being activated. And here is what you need to know. Another thing is this. It's only in the New Testament that you know the exact duration. Elisha never gave the duration. He said, I tell you, there will be no rain on this land except by my words. And that was supposed to give a window for repentance. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will turn here from heaven and heal their land, right? So it didn't have to last three and a half years. The people just didn't change. Just didn't change. Just didn't change. And so anyways, time and again, looking through the Old Testament, you know, and all the seemingly, you know, questionable stories through the proper court. I mean, by the grace of God, the amount of clarity I have, and I don't even know everything. But what I want, what I want to tell you from my little experience is that God can be trusted. 
And in fact, he didn't change in the New Testament. He wasn't bad in the old and good in the new. He didn't change. God also did not get born again. <laughs> because if you read generally, you would think that he got born again with us. He too changed. All the excesses are either the excesses of men or the wrong lenses. You know what, you know what the Bible says? It says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of light, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And so this is a clear allusion to the solar system. Number one, his Father of light, just the same with the sun, is Father amongst many lights. Do you understand what I'm saying? And he says, there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And that tells us something very profound. When we were young, they told us that the sun rises where? And sets where? In the west. I hope you have enough scientific knowledge now to know that that's not true. The sun neither rises nor sets. The sun does not move. But it looks like the sun is rising and setting. Why? Because we are moving. Oh, Jesus. This is a very important role in Bible interpretation. Lawrence, come, come here quickly. Just climb up here. So, if you remember in elementary science, we were told how we have day and night. The sun is standing, you know, and it happens to be yellow. So, <laughs> the sun is not moving, but the earth is rotating. And so, when we back the sun, there is night. When we face the sun, there is day. The earth is not moving. So, when you have shadows, the sun is not the problem. The sun did not move. You were the one who moved. And that is the same thing about Bible interpretation. God is the father of light. With him, there is no variableness or shadow of turning. But we have shadows. Because our perspective changes. Maybe we don't have the right interpretation. We don't really understand what was being implied. So we, we are seen from the wrong lens. And... Therein lies the darkness and the shadows. Thank you very much. Do you understand that? Clap if I try now. now. Wow. Uh -uh. I did preach. I know. <laughs> you all are so spoiled in this church. They hype me well outside. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter to me. But you see, that detail changes a lot. It changes a lot. So now, you can see, Moses can be corrected. Moses said, the woman, when she's at the time of, at a time of a month, is unclean. She should not come out. But the Bible tells us, Jesus is walking, and a woman with the issue of blood, unclean according to the law. She's meant to be indoors according to the law. She comes and she touches the hem of his garment, and what flows from Jesus is not instant judgment to kill her. What flows from Jesus is healing. Come on, are you with me? And so by that statement alone, we see 
This is the true character of God, the express image of his person. Moses did his best in his context, but this is the character of God. And a lot of instances where we have shadows, you know what the Bible says? It says, oh my God, I want to show you a powerful text. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.15, and if there's time, we'll still come back to this text because it's very powerful. We'll try to do a scanty commentary of the whole chapter. Everybody, read together, one, two, go. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is on their hearts. This is why you read the Old Testament and it doesn't seem clear. He says, even until this day, the veil is on their hearts. It's like there's a veil. And then look at what he says, verse 16. Everybody read verse 16 together, one, two, go. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. The veil shall be taken away. We see, we see the true character of God in Christ. It says, till this day, you're reading the Old Testament. When you're reading Moses, the, you know, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, there are things you don't understand because it's veiled. And not only is the character of God veiled in the Old Testament, God's salvific plan, God's salvation plan is veiled in the Old Testament. And let me, let me explain it to you this way. First, let me show you a text. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Are you learning anything? Thank you, Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Read together, one, two, go. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, even the what? Hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So listen, it is possible for you, for something to be yours, but it's not time. Let me give you a typical example, unfortunately not relatable to the typical African. I want to talk about Boxing Day. First and foremost, for the most part of my life, I didn't know what Boxing Day was. And it didn't help that on Boxing Day, they fixed boxing matches. So I thought it was about boxing, like let's beat each other, Boxing Day. But Boxing Day is a gift boxes. You, you have Christmas trees and gifts under the trees. And on Boxing Day, you unpack it. And just imagine growing up in a house like that. Maybe your parents have already boxed their gifts since the beginning of December. Every day you are passing the tree, you are saying, this is my gift, but I can't open it yet. Come on, are you getting this? It's my gift, but it's not time. It's for me, but it's not time. I have to wait till Boxing Day. And that's how Old Testament mysteries were. It was for us, but it wasn't time. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so God wrapped it. God wants to tell us about his salvation plan, but he wrapped it. He stored it in a veiled format. Instead of saying outrightly, Jesus is going to come, he's going to die, he will rise again the third day. Uh -uh. He, he told a story, a, a prophetic parable through Moses. Number one, you are sinners. Number two, you need atonement. Number three, you will get a lamb representing Christ. You will slaughter that lamb representing that Christ will die. 
and then the high priest who also is Christ will take that blood, enter into the temple which is heaven upon the resurrection of Christ and offer his life. So that was the salvation story in a figure. But it was veiled to be unveiled in Boxing Day. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he now says, as it is written, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. He says, but they are revealed by the Spirit. So in this, in this, the revelation of the Spirit now helps us see, oh, this was on Christ. It's just like a Nollywood movie. How do you want to depict death and resurrection? I'm sorry, old Nollywood then, they are doing well now. It's just the same way you want to show that someone will die. In, in Nollywood, those who say, ah, we don't have blood. Bring palm oil. So, Moses, in telling the salvation story in a figure, says, we are going to use a lamb. But when we kill the lamb, we can't resurrect the lamb, even though the real lamb will resurrect. So, a human being will act the resurrected lamb. He will be the priest, even though in the true story, the sacrifice is also the priest. Come on, are you with me? But for the, for, for, just for illustration, we'll use two different things, a lamb and a priest. When the lamb is dead, the priest will take the lamb's blood, enter into the most holy place representing heaven, and then will make intercession for us. That is the salvation story. It was meant to turn their eyes to Christ. Look about, look, look at Joseph also. That was quite a story. That the enemies of Joseph, his brothers, were plotting consciously to eliminate Joseph. But every step that they took to eliminate Joseph ended up fulfilling God's dream for Joseph's life. And that's exactly what happened in Christ. That the people who were killing him thought they were ending his life and his ministry. Not knowing that they were fulfilling it. As it is written, if they had known, they would not have what? So just think about it. Joseph dreamt. They wanted to ensure that the dream will not be fulfilled. And they pushed him to the very place where it will be fulfilled. They sold him to slavery. That's the story of Christ. Come on, are you with me? God is telling all the stories in a veiled manner. Look at Noah and the ark. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the ark is Christ. Salvation in Christ. That the world will be destroyed. Our only safety is in Christ, in his salvation. Look at Moses. Moses prophesied. He said, and another prophet will God raise like me. He prophesied it. And oh my God, the, the extent of the consistency. You know, I preached this for the first time, 2019. And interestingly, a celebrity talked about it. And someone sent it to me. Very profound. I think a lot more people are studying the Bibles now. And I'm very excited about that. Good stuff. The similarities are uncanny. That when Moses was two years and under, every child two years and under, Herod tried to kill. This exact same thing happened in the time of Jesus. You're aware, right? 
and that Moses had to flee away for, for a while. Just like the parents of Jesus had to run away with Jesus for a while. And then Moses had the burning bush experience. Just like Jesus had the wilderness experience. After the burning bush, Moses returned full of power, performing miracles. Jesus returned to Jerusalem in the fullness of the Spirit. Moses was a deliverer to deliver the people from Egypt. Jesus was to deliver the people from sin. Moses climbed the mountain to give the law. And that's why Jesus had the transfiguration experience. To announce by a new glory, not just the transfiguration of the face, but his whole body, that a new law was in force. And so the similarities are uncanny. So much so that in John chapter 1, one of the early disciples of Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he ran to tell his friend, come and see the person of whom Moses spoke in the law. I had found him. I had found him. The similarities. Because in Christ, the veil is taken away. And you see that God has given ample examples to show that this was his plan. You see, salvation wasn't God's um, uh, creative attempts to solve a problem he never knew existed. That, ah, I tried the law. The law didn't work. Let's, let's now try Christ. No. It was the plan from the beginning. And so the writer of Hebrews argues, he says, blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And by the mere fact that you had to do that every year, that was God showing you what you did last year did not work. And so the real lamb is Christ. When John the Baptist saw Jesus passing, from the eyes of revelation, he pointed and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's revelation speaking. Calling Jesus lamb. That's revelation. That's interpretation. You get that? That's Bible interpretation. Put on your thinking caps and let's run through a text and then we pray. 2 Corinthians 3. Adjust your imaginary cap because if you don't follow me, I go carry you, go where you don't know. Are you ready? Look at verse 7. It says, but if the ministry of death why does he call the Old Testament the ministry of death? Because people who thought that by obeying the law, they will live, discovered that they couldn't keep it, and so they died. If the ministry of death, engraving on stones, that's talking about the law, was glorious. Now, this is metaphorical. How does he know that the law was glorious? He tells you why. He says, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. So he's telling you, when Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, he came back with a radiant face. And the radiance on his face was testament to the glory of the law. Because the law could make his face radiant, therefore the law is radiant. Come on, are you with me? So he's judging the efficacy or the glory of the law by its impact on Moses. If the law could make Moses' face radiant, it means the law is glorious. So the law is glorious. How does he know? Moses' face was radiant. 
Look at the next verse, verse 8. It says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So he's making a comparison. Let me break it down more for you. If you were waiting for Moses at the foot of the, t- of the, of, of the mountain, he said he's going to receive law from God. And he comes back. If he came back only with tablet of stone, you say, ah, ah, you don't go write this thing. <laughs> right? But when his face is radiant, and he doesn't even know, it's the people who are telling him, what's that? Let's cover his face. Then they know that he has been with God. Come on, are you with me? And so the radiance on his face was proof of the efficacy of the tablet in his hand. And that's why Jesus, that transfiguration experience was important in comparison to show you this is even more glory. Moses was only his face. Me is my whole body. It was a comparison. And so he says the ministration of the spirit is more glorious. Why did Paul know? Amongst many reasons, the transfiguration. But let's move on. Come on, are you still with me? Up to this point, you never lost, Abby. Check on your pers- the person by your side. Are you still here? <laughs> It says for verse 9, for if the ministration of condemnation had glory, the ministration of righteousness exceeds in glory. It says, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. It means the glory of the New Testament is so much more glorious that you can't even call that one glory anymore. For instance, your dad is rich. Dangote is rich. For instance, for instance, for instance. There comes a time in the life of every child. You feel like uh, my parents meet my needs. There will always be that relative that you visit and you, for the first time it will dawn on you, ah, we're poor. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm saying. It's just, it dawn on you, ah. I didn't know. <laughs> he said, you can't call that glory anymore. There was a time Nokia 3310, the phone was glorious. Do you understand? I'm trying my best to carry you along. And then look at what he says. This is where it now get. This is interpretation now from verse twelve. Everybody read verse twelve together. Want to go? Therefore, since we have such hope, we use what great boldness. KJV says plainness of speech. And then look at what it says in verse thirteen. Verse thirteen from verse twelve. Look at the flow of thought. It says, therefore, since we have such hope. We use great plainness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face. So what what does the veil of Moses have to do with his speech? Hold on. By the way, 
What you're about to understand is why it is easier to understand the New Testament than the Old. You read the New Testament. Oh my God, I remember as a child, I wanted to read through the Bible. I stopped at Leviticus. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I was just like, what is going on here? I mean, I mean, why? Why so hard? I tried three times. It ended in Leviticus three times. Until I had the breakthrough, you know, video. I watched the video where someone was saying, you mustn't read the Bible from Genesis. In fact, for a new believer, read from the New Testament. Wow, that helped me. And you see, Bible plans that say read three chapters in the new, new three chapters in the old, it really helped, actually, at least for a beginner. But now, he's telling you why the New Testament is easier. Paul says we use great plainness of speech. We don't go through the corners. We talk direct. You get it? Uh-huh. So we use great plainness of speech. He said, unlike Moses. And he says, Moses put a veil over his face. So that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what is passing. So it means that the veil of Moses represented his teaching ministry. Just the same way because of the veil, they couldn't see the glory. It means his teaching ministry was veiled. That they couldn't see the real glory of his message. He was talking about lambs. They thought it was about yearly atonement, not knowing it was about Christ. They couldn't see the real glory. Are you with me? It says, and not as Moses who put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel, so he's telling you, oh my God, the interpretation of the veil is so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly unto what was being abolished. Now, everybody look at verse 14. Everybody read verse 14 together, want to go. But their minds were what? Hold on. Who had the veil on his face? But he said the minds of the people were blinded. It was supposed to be Moses' eyes that were blinded. Moses' face that was blinded. But he's telling you, Moses put that veil to demonstrate the blindedness of the hearts of, of the minds of people. The fact that the testament that he was bringing, they will not understand it. Their minds were blinded. He says, for until this day remains the same veil on taking and the reading of the Old Testament. See, he's explaining why when you read the Old Testament, you don't get it. He said, there's a veil. There's a veil. In your, when you read the historical context, Moses put a veil over his face only for a while. But he's telling you the veil is still there. The real veil is in the understanding of what he wrote. And he said, till this day, that veil remains untaken in the reading of the Old Testament. And he says, which veil is what? Done away in Christ. Meaning, oh my God, when you embrace Christ as the interpretation of the scriptures, a lot of things will become opened. You now see it clearly. Now, did it ever happen to you as a child? I remember this thing that happened. I, rem- I will never forget. Prami one blue. I'm very weird. You know, I saw someone in Abuja. And I said, oh my God. Can you remember in Nosri too? You had an injury on your knee. And I mistakenly bumped into you and it really hurt you bad. 
you know, randomly I remember that and I, and I never got the opportunity to apologize. He's like, nursery too. <laughs> it was then I realized I was not supposed to remember. <laughs> so I have weird memories like that. 12 midnight, just this morning, I sent my mom a message because I saw she was I thought she was up. I said, do you remember when you wanted to change my school in nursery one? And you took me for the entrance exam. I didn't know that I would try on new uniform. And unfortunately, the underwear I had on that day wasn't nice. So when they say, remove your shirt, said, <laughs> there was a problem. <laughs> She said, how do you remember these things? But I do. I do. I don't know why. I don't know how, but I do. So in, in, in primary one blue, some friends were passing notes. <laughs> Hear me out now. They were passing notes. And I was curious to know what they were saying. This is how people join calls. Curiosity. Because I was like, what? When I took the notes, I couldn't understand what they were reading. So what I now understand is that they had this code of communication where they changed the vowels to one, two, three, four, five. Some of you know that thing, right? You were part of them. <laughs> so I didn't get it at all. I, oh my God. And I don't know why I was so curious. I said, tell me now. Tell me, what are you doing? Tell me how to. And we're like, mm. you know? <laughs> oh my God. So eventually, one nice person eventually told me, okay, one represents A. Two represents E, and immediately everything now opened up. I could read it. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, that's the Old Testament. The moment Christ is inserted, it opens up to you. And that's what he's saying. He says, that veil is done away in Christ. That's when you see that the Passover was about Christ. That there is going to be worldwide destruction and your security will not just be because you are a Jew. Eh -eh. The only thing that will be your security will be the blood. Come on, are you, are you getting it now? The only thing that will be your security will not be that you go to church. Will not be that you are religious. It says, when I see the blood. So even Jews that did not have the blood on their lintel will be in trouble. And guess what? If the Egyptians heard and they put the blood on their lintel, they would have been saved. So that was a prophetic imagery on salvation and the end of the world and the fact that our only security, so you see, the veil is done away in Christ. Now, everybody look at verse 16. Everybody read loud as you can want to go. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be what? Glory to God. We use it when we are about to dance. We're trying to tell people to free themselves. Now you understand the real meaning. It says, now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. liberty. Not just liberty to know God, but liberty to understand his word better. And in verse 18, it says, we all, with open face, the veil is taken away, with open face, with open face, beholding us in a glass, the glory of God. We are what? Changed. Hallelujah. 
The reason the law could not change is because they couldn't see the real glory, the real message. But we all with open face, you know, of the many things that the veil represents, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 20, that the veil represented the flesh of Christ. Come on, are you with me? And the fact that the death of Jesus gave us access to God. This was why when Jesus died on the cross, instantly the veil covering the most holy place tore in two. And now for the first time, a normal person could look and see into that most holy place. It was sacred before, but now everybody can look. Because by the sacrifice of Jesus, we have access. The writer of Hebrews now says, let us come boldly. Oh my God, come on, are you with me? Our high priest has gone in for us. Let us come boldly. No more segregation. The veil has been torn. We have access. Access to the Father. Romans 5.2. It says, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Can you stand up this morning? Oh my God. You, 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 you didn't stand. Sit down, sit down, sit down. Oh my God. When I feel dull this thing, eh? Can you stand up now? Yeah, more like it. Just begin to thank him right now. Thank him right now. Thank him right now. Thank him for access. Thank him for access. Thank him for access to know him in his Christ. To understand his word in clarity. Thank him. Thank him. Come on, thank him, thank him, thank him. Hallelujah. Let me tell you this. The father said, Jesus said, what I see the father do, I do. By studying Jesus, we know God's mind. Jesus was always willing and ready to heal. And so we know. God, his will is healing. Amen, somebody. Jesus provided, not once, not twice. Even when the disciples were second guessing. When he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They said, it's because we did not carry bread. He said, oh, ye of little faith. He thought it was a matter of faith. After I've fed, fed multitudes twice without bread or with just few loaves of bread, you think it's an issue? He expected them to believe in his ability to provide all the time. The Bible says in 3 John 2, I wish above all things that you prosper and you're in good health even as your soul prospers. It will always be the will of God. Your prosperity, your health. Come on, are you with me? Provision in Christ. Feel free to expect it. By the favor of God. Expect it. Ex insist on healing. And Christ exposes the works of the devil. You know it wasn't God who killed your uncle. It wasn't God who killed your mom. Don't forget. Every good and perfect gift. Not only every good, but only good comes from God. Every shadow 
of doubting comes from your perspective. But in Christ, you see the will of God. He's always good. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7, it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ. He's good. I'm telling you, he's good. This God, you can bank on him, he's good. He loves you. He really does. I want you to thank him for his goodness to you in your life in salvation and in the practical aspect of your life. Trust him, his gyra. He can be trusted. Thank him. Thank him from your heart. Some of you, this is a timely prophetic word. Thank him. Thank him. Thank you. Thank him. Thank him. Thank him. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809 996 7000 blessings.